Good morning and welcome to the Betsy and Walter Stern Conference Center here at Hudson Institute. Uh, I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome everyone to the second event in our newly inaugurated speaker series, Conversations on National Security and U.S. Naval Power. This series, which Hudson Senior Fellow Seth Cropsey, who directs our Center for American Sea Power, uh, runs, is designed to be a forum for critical voices who champion the notion that maintaining American maritime preeminence is essential to American national security. In this vein, I'm especially delighted to welcome Congressman Joe Courtney of Connecticut's 2nd District to Hudson Institute. Congressman Courtney has served for six terms in the House representing the 2nd District. He serves on the Armed Services and Education and Workforce Committee. His is an important voice on naval issues. As ranking member of the Sea Power and Projection Forces Subcommittee of the House Armed Services Committee, and as co-chair of the House Shipbuilding and Submarine Caucuses. And I think there's uh, no better voice for strong bipartisan support for the U.S. Navy than uh, Representative Courtney. He's been a leader on numerous issues, including on pushing for increased submarine production as a national security priority, and he's championed an issue near and dear to our hearts here at Hudson, the need to replace the Ohio class of submarine. I should note that the largest military installation in New England, sub-base New London, is in his district, as is the Coast Guard Academy, as is the electric boat shipyard. And for his important work on national security promoting uh, the U.S. Navy. He's received the Distinguished Public Service Award from Navy Secretary Ray Mabus, the highest civilian honor the Navy confers. <clears throat> Representative Courtney is going to be in conversation with Dr. Seth Cropsey, whom, as I noted earlier, directs our Center for American Sea Power. Seth is a student of strategy and history and a keen observer of strategic naval developments. He's a two-decade veteran of the U.S. Navy who served as Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administration, and he is the author of two must-read books, Mayday, The Decline of American Naval Supremacy, which came out in 2013, and his 2017 sequel, as it were, Sea Blindness, How Political Neglect is Choking American Sea Power and What to Do About It. Seth is, of course, a frequent contributor to the op-ed pages of important newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal. So without any further ado, let me turn it over to uh, Seth. Thank you very much, Congressman. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Um, and Representative Courtney, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, it's an honor for us, and uh, looking forward to this conversation. Uh, the Congressman uh, should leave at around, um, according to, because of the schedule um, in Congress, uh, at about 12.45, give or take a couple of minutes. Uh, I'd like to wind things up a few minutes before that so that there'll be an opportunity for questions and answers. And uh, uh, so let me get to it um, without delay. Um, I guess the most important question here is, uh, why is sea power important today? What is the challenge that faces the United States at sea globally? And uh, um, yeah, that, that would be good for starters. Sure. What's the issue? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to thank Hudson Institute for the invitation. And it's good to see you again, Seth. He's been a, a, 
a witness before the Sea Power Committee over the years, and uh, again, really solid, um, you know, experienced input, which uh, has been valuable over the, you know, certainly my time there. And again, it's it's uh, great to be with you here uh, at this forum. Um, so on the committee, you know, this question gets asked uh, frequently, and. Um, you know, it's, as Ken said, I'm in year 12 now, and, and to some degree that answer has sort of shifted a little bit in terms of just what's been happening out in the world. I remember as a freshman on the Armed Services Committee, General Pace, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and I was asking him about um, the decline in the submarine fleet, and he, um, at the time, you know, we were in the height of Iraq's uh, ground war, and uh, he just sort of uh, looked at me a little sort of, um, askance and basically just said, well, you know, what are you worried about China? You know, like that was something that, you know, was sort of uh, far-fetched at that point. But uh, obviously the world has changed. That, that question gets uh, sort of asked uh, a lot differently now. And the answer certainly is, is uh, certainly clearer today than it was maybe to some folks uh, 12 years ago. And, and obviously, um, you know, we get a chance to go out and, and visit uh, areas like Indo-Pacific. Uh, you know, we've been with uh, Admiral Harris a number of times who describes, you know, what's going on in terms of just the change of the international order in terms of sea lanes and uh, the maritime environment. Uh, again, the 70-year uh, reign of uh, freedom of navigation, which I think did so much to boost uh, wealth growth across the world, um, obviously is now uh, very much uh, in play because of China's, uh, you know, I think uh, extra legal, illegal uh, claims in terms of uh, controlling uh, the South China Sea and even the East China Sea, the island building. Um, again, this isn't just sort of uh, an ego trip, in my opinion, in terms of that country. They, they really are trying to uh, change what I think has been a very successful 70-year um, record of, of uh, you know, peaceful, um, rule of law that, that existed in the maritime realm. And, uh, and that's why, um, you know, certainly our conversations at RIMPAC with uh, some of our allies, uh, Australia had their Australian-American leadership dialogue in, in, in town here last week. Again, this, this whole issue of maritime um, uh, freedom of navigation um, is, is really, I think, changing um, in, in real time uh, to the point where, again, all of our allies, whether it's Australia, Vietnam, uh, Japan, Philippines, I mean, they're all looking at their uh, naval budgets uh, because they realize it's just they can't take for granted, you know, the, the, the environment that existed before. I mean, if you shift, uh, again, to the Atlantic, again, it's a totally different environment than uh, 12 years ago when I first came to Congress. Um, and General Scaparati, and the European Command has been emphasizing those points when he's come to committee that, um, you know, submarine activity, um, you know, sort of uh, aggressive uh, behavior on the seas is just radically different than it was uh, 12 years ago. And, um, and that's where, uh, again, I think that our country has a very important role to play in terms of just trying to restore what I think were very successful international rules of the road and norms that um, benefit everyone. We'll get back to China in, in, in just sure. a moment, but uh, you mentioned the Atlantic. Um, and I was wondering, uh, what about the Mediterranean? Um, which is to say we have four ballistic missile defense destroyers based in the, the western extreme of the Mediterranean. Um, but that's a relatively quiet area, and the eastern end of the Mediterranean is a relatively inquiet area. Right. 
Um, is that... no, again, this is uh, new stuff, you know, in terms of you know what existed ten years ago, and um, and you know we may as well throw the Black Sea in there as well, and Crimea. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean that that. Um, annexation by Russia, I mean, at the end of the day, was really as much a naval play as it was sort of a territorial play. And, and you know, that... Um, because Russia didn't have a port on the Black correct. Sea. So, uh, again, just the, 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 the map is changing, as I said, in real time. And, and certainly what you described in the Mediterranean, you know, could probably keep going around the world in terms of the Indian Ocean and other places that um, the, the whole issue of the maritime realm uh, looks a lot different. And, and again, I think the Navy's role, which was somewhat reflected in the national defense strategy that the administration mm -hmm. put out, uh, I think is just sort of uh, in a much different place than it was uh, a decade ago. Let's get back to China for a second. Um, I, I just want to throw out some statistics here. The, the Naval War College's uh, Chinese Maritime Study Institute predicts that uh, the Chinese combat fleet will reach over well over 415 ships in just 12 years. Um, for example, uh, the PLAN, the, the Chinese Navy, is developing air independent and nuclear submarines and ballistic missile nuclear submarines. Um, and in just the air independent propulsion class submarines, they're going to put 20 boats in service between 2006 and 2020. So, um, and just because they're uh, air independent propulsion vessels, boats, doesn't mean that they have to uh, stay within the immediate neighborhood. In fact, some of them have deployed as far uh, as far west as um, as Pakistan, um, the navy, our navy, expects the Chinese submarine force to reach seventy boats two years from now, um, and ninety nine by two thousand thirty, when we're supposed to have, if the current shipbuilding plan stays in place, seventy eight. Um, are we going to be able to keep pace with the Chinese Navy? Uh, you've been at the forefront of calling attention to the need for increased U.S. submarine uh, shipbuilding in the foreseeable future, and I was wondering if you could Tell us about that. Sure. So um, again, we uh, have the opportunity to hear directly uh, from our combatant commanders uh, in different, um, you know, parts of the world. Uh, Admiral Harris, uh, who again just departed, but you know, the last two or three years, uh, again, has been incredibly blunt and to the point about the fact that, um, again, this this environment is changing uh, rapidly. In in the the numbers that you recited, I mean, really, I think underscore that. And that the um, and so it's having a lot of ripple effects. Just to get out of the submarine realm, I mean, I, I actually think the ship collisions, you know, that occurred there, I mean, it fundamentally are being driven by the heel-to-toe sort of deployments of our surface ships in response to this increased activity. Um, you know, again, that's obviously um, resulted in a much different, I mean, a much larger sort of analysis in terms of just you know balancing safety with, with um, the pace of deployments. But again, it, it's all tied to that same area. And 
Uh, you know, we obviously made a decision, uh, either at the end of the Bush administration or beginning of the Obama administration, to sort of change the, the proportion of the Navy's presence to 60-40 in the Indo-Pacific uh, region versus um, uh, the European area. Again, at that time, you know, we weren't seeing the resurgent Russian Navy happening, so it seemed like a pretty safe bet at that point. And, um, and so, um, you know, what I would say in terms of the, um, you know, the positive side is that the force structure assessment that came out in December of 2016, which again talked about a 355-ship Navy, and, and within that also made some, I think, pretty significant statements regarding the composition of the fleet, the force, uh, the fleet architecture. Uh, all of that was, you know, not just done, um, you know, as sort of a wish list. I mean, it was really done in re in, as a result of strategic challenges that are changing out there. And again, which you documented well. And so, you know, that's very good, you know, sort of framework that the, the U.S. should be sort of uh, working from in terms of the future of the Navy. Um, but it still begs the question about, you know, how fast and, 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 and where are we actually spending our money? Does it really align itself with the, the force, the fleet architecture that was recommended in that report? And uh, that obviously has been um, a, an issue that was just played out on the floor of the House of Representatives just a couple of weeks ago. And, um, and, and um, I, I think, you know, there's serious uh, questions about whether or not uh, we're off to a good start in terms of uh, implementing that force structure assessment. I, I would um, so far uh, give pretty low marks uh, to, to, you know, what's happened in the year and a half since that report came out. Where should we be? Well, again, you know, the, the thing I've learned on the, on the Sea Power Committee and, and is that, you know, and you know this and most of the audience does, is that shipbuilding is a long game. You know, it, it's just, you know, it's great to have a, a, um, a report that says, you know, we need to go from 308 to 355. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you look at the, the length of time that it takes to build um, a carrier or a destroyer or a submarine, um, you know, this administration, even under the best case scenario, if they get to a second term, I mean, they're, they've already, you know, they're already um, a quarter of the way through in terms of, you know, what um, impact that they can make. And, and so far, if you look at the 30-year the shipbuilding plans that have come over from the administration as well as their budget, I mean, uh, we're in the, the breakdown lane in terms of the, the, the you know, how... Um, uh, you know, speedy this implementation is going to be. And so, um, you know, what I think our committee has been doing, and again, I don't think it's far-fetched or, or pie in the sky, is that we have been working with the Congressional Budget Office, with the Congressional Research Service, with the Navy, to really try and come up with um, the most um, efficient ways to, to, you know, maximize precious budget dollars and authorizations to, to really, um, you know, get ahead of the curve in terms of implementing the FSA. And so far, again, there has been a lot of resistance, institutional resistance within um, the OSD, the Office of Secretary of Defense. Uh, the Navy has, in my opinion, given us very good tools to, to, to look at and to, to work with in terms of, you know, a two-carrier block buy. And, and, and we, we've gotten information that that will save money uh, for, uh, you know, the, the shipbuilding account uh, in the area of uh, the Virginia class. Uh, you know, Admiral Murs and others, when they came over uh, last February with their 30-year shipbuilding plan, they identified 
uh, industrial base opportunity to go above a two a year build rate, not too fast, not too you know, reckless or rash, but in 2022 and 2023. And they've also uh, gave us what we need to do in terms of long lead uh, acquisition to, to sort of make sure that the industrial base can, can you know, meet that um, growth in a way that is orderly and, and, and going to be implemented. Obviously, there was big pushback two weeks ago uh, from uh, OSD in terms of uh, those proposals, which uh, I think is very unfortunate because, uh, you know, we, as I said, are going to be in a place where to use the, the uh, SSN, the attack submarine um, fleet, which is at 53 today, it's going down to 42 over the next 10 years with the retirements of the Los Angeles class. That's happening at precisely the same time that we're seeing uh, our competitors growing that size of their fleet, as you pointed out. So, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, NDAA, which you and I were talking about off uh, camera here, is in the process of final stages. We're still trying to create some uh, legal space for the Navy and the shipbuilders to, to again, take advantage of what Admiral Murs uh, identified uh, back in February. Um, because if we don't do that, then, um, you know, we're really just um, going backwards, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, what the FSA laid out. And, um, and as I said, that in terms of what we're hearing from the combatant commanders and, and certainly what uh, our, you know, intelligence are telling us in terms of where the growth is, um, you know, our, our, we're going to be hard pressed to sort of keep up with these challenges that are out there. Yeah, I just want to... Uh, harp on that point for a moment because it, it, it really deserves harping. Um, because of the retirement of submarines that were that have out are are outliving their service lives, um, and our ability as it is right now to replace them, there's going to be a decade gap when the size of our submarine force does not increase. Um, to mention the most obvious example, China is not bound by that problem. Um, what are the consequences? I mean, when so, you talk with combatant commanders, I mean, in a, I'm sure you ask the question. Yeah. What? Well, I mean, what they tell us is at some point, quantity is quality. You know, if if you um, are out there um, and you know your competitor is in bigger numbers, I mean, the best you can do is play zone defense, you know, and that's really, um, you know, not the optimal uh, situation to be in. And, you know, Admiral Fogo, who's over in, in Europe right now, is the head of our, our naval forces, uh, has been, you know, publicly talking about the fact that submarine activity now is, you know, really starting to get close to Cold War levels, you know, 70, 80% Stavridis testified before our committee uh, to the same effect. So, um, you know, again, it just, it, it creates, um, you know, just higher risk. And, um, and, and as I said, that's where we are today, you know, with, with, with that decline that is just baked in, you know, because of just the, the reactor life and the whole life. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's the only way you can mitigate that. And, I, and again, we'll be watching the president's budget in February when it comes over. Um, it, you know, is whether or not service life extension becomes sort of the, the mitigating um, sort of policy to try and, uh, you know, reduce the, the size of that bathtub that, that's going to be happening in the 2020s. But service life extension, 
Um, you know, which is, I, I'm, I'm not religiously opposed to that, but, but I, again, it, it creates its own set of issues that, you know, you really have to kind of think through. Um, these are old boats. I mean, they were built in the 1980s and 90s. You know, they don't have the same, um, you know, uh, capabilities that a Virginia class has. And, and when you have to refuel the reactor, which is what you have to do for a service life extension for a Los Angeles class, and you've got to really check the hull <laughs> to make sure that it's, it's okay. They've been running hard, you know, for the decades um, that they've been out there. And then there's a whole separate issue. Technology's changed in terms of shipbuilding. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, where you get spare parts, you know, where you, um, you know, find the prints, <laughs> because, you know, it, you didn't have computer-aided, you know, design back in those days. This thing is not as easy as it sounds. It's not like putting a quart of oil in your, uh, you know, your 10-year-old car and hope it's, you know, run for the next five years. That'd be some quart. <laughs> is it your sense that, um, that your colleagues outside the armed services committees um, see what you see, or is this, is this an issue that is one of many and um, you have a lot of right. a lot no, of things I mean, to look, do. The, I mean, yeah, the, the bandwidth where is, is Congress here? No, well, I would say this. I mean, as I said, compared to my question when I was a freshman versus today, it really is different. I mean, people do understand that, and it, you know, in a pretty broad-based way that the world is in a different place. And that, um, uh, and again, if you look at... Uh, the, the FSA, just for the record, was issued by the Obama administration. I mean, that was Secretary Mabus who, you know, had, and it wasn't just in response to the election in November. I mean, this thing had been ongoing for about a year and a half. And, uh, and if you look at uh, the record of that administration, they actually doubled the number of ships under contract. Um, so, the, you know, there has been a, a you know, I think a, a trend that even predates uh, the new administration that has been moving towards um, recapitalizing um, the Navy, and it's been pretty non-controversial in terms of uh, you know defense appropriations bills and, and NDAAs. But again, the, the the more recent sort of challenges which you described, I, I think it is still sort of uh, starting to to sink in. And and um, so when we had um, the debate on my amendment a couple of weeks ago, which would have uh, implemented um, the long lead materials to to get to uh, a three-a-year build rate in 22 and 23 for the uh, attack subs. You know, one of the members in opposition uh, got up and said, well, you know, we, we have a very good, you know, shipbuilding plan from the administration that will get us to 355 ships by the 2050s. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, we need to <laughs> kind of work on that. And again, it was said very, you know, sincerely, and, and um, but, uh, you know, that's 32 years from now. So, um, so it shows they're still, even with the people who are in the middle of the debates on this, um, you know, the, the, the risks of waiting that long and also not focusing on the components of the FSA, I think are just really, we've got more work to do. So again, and I, I wanna just touch on that point for a second. You know, 355 is a great number, but if it's 355 small combatant surface ships, I mean, that doesn't really, address you know the the strategic challenges which which were which was driving that report if you look deeper into the to the report it actually talked about increasing the submarine fleet from 48 which was the prior target as you know uh, from the prior force structure assessment to 66 um, SSNs as uh, attack subs and the large surface components uh, you know went up uh, by 14 
Well, if you look at the budget that came over, the 30-year shipbuilding plan and you know, what's coming out so far in the appropriations process, those components of the, of the fleet really don't get the, the attention that really the FSA was sort of, I think, pretty um, vigorously pointing fleet to. Fleet structure assessment. When you right. Say. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Say. yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, as you know, and I wanted to just make this point for people who've joined us today, um, both the Congressional Research Service and the Congressional Budget Office agree uh, on numbers that um, the requests, shipbuilding requests, uh, would have to be something like 25, 20 to 25 percent higher than what we've seen even from this administration sustained over that 30-year period or 30-year-plus period just to reach the 355 ships. So that means an agreement between Congress and between the executive and the legislative branches to sustain shipbuilding at a rate that's 20 percent higher than the average of the past three decades in order to get in order to get there so so I, and it, that's true and, I, and I, it's obviously it, it raises a larger question of you know how the pie chart gets divided up you know in, in, in the Department of Defense as a whole but but I would just want to really emphasize that you know CBO and and the Congressional Research Service um, have also done really good work about trying to identify ways that we can more efficiently, um, build more um, ships and, and boats and subs, which is, again, incremental funding, which, again, is kind of an appropriations term, but that allows you to, to um, you know, basically shop like you're at Costco, you know, where you can use sort of, uh, you know, higher volume um, ways to, to um, materials and, and suppliers. Uh, but again, it, it means you got to sort of get out of the one-year budget cycle and, and, and you know, um, look at uh, some of these programs over a period of time. To the extent that there's new programs, that's probably unacceptable risk in terms of, you know, whether or not a new ship, uh, you know, should really get that kind of, um, you know, carte blanche or, or I wouldn't call it a blank check, but certainly freedom to, to, to purchase over a period of times. But when you're talking about Virginia class, I mean, this is a program that has now demonstrated, you know, it's, it's, Credibility as a as a successful program that has been, you know, really hitting the the targets in terms of sixty months for construction, um, and certainly staying at or within budget. So why you would not want to take advantage of that success with incremental funding? You can you can buy more subs for less money if you if you do it. Um, you know, again, sort of like a Costco approach to to acquisition. And and by the way, we've been doing that with with uh, carriers because they're so expensive and they're so big, you have to do incremental funding you know, for carriers. So it's not like we're, we're um, you know, violating some orthodoxy or catechism by, by um, you know, having the DOD and the appropriators to really embrace more efficient ways to build. And, and as I say, it's gotten the blessing of CBO and, and CRS uh, in terms of our work with them. And it's worked before. I mean, at the beginning of the Reagan administration, the two carriers were funded at the same time. And uh, the Navy, uh, I think, estimated that the savings amounted to over $700 million. 
which in that time was actually a serious amount of money. Um, um, let me just switch topics for a moment sure. here, switch direction. Uh, what's your sense of um, whether the United States has a maritime strategy today? Um, are we going? Are we are we drifting? Are we moving ahead purposefully? Are we deliberating? I mean, we've been talking about ship numbers and types of ships and their importance and the threat, um, but if all of those things go as they should, um, it needs to be accompanied by some kind of idea. Um, how are these to be used? Uh, how do we match the resources we have with the challenges that we face? No, that's a great question. So the former um, maritime administrator, um, uh, Chip Janikin, uh, who just, you know, with the change of administration had to leave, um, you know, he was valiantly working on a maritime strategy uh, report for the country as a whole, which again, extended beyond just um, the Navy, but, you know, really also, um, you know, all the, um, you know, auxiliary and support services for the Navy, as well as the Coast Guard, as well as commercial shipbuilding. Uh, we have not had a maritime strategy um, since the Roosevelt administration, you know, that really has sort of looked at things in a sort of global way that, um, you know, would, I think, um, be a pretty logical, obvious step for a, a, a maritime country. Uh, and I know you've argued this with your sea blindness, uh, you know, work in the past. Um, uh, Chip, uh, you know, left office without having been able to get across the finish line uh, with the report. Uh, he, he, it was really interesting talking to him about it because he said, you know, how to try and get to that place with all of the federal agencies that touch, um, you know, the seas uh, and the maritime realm is, it was like dozens, you know, and, and trying to get them all heard these cats together so that we could have a comprehensive maritime strategy. Um, again, at the end of the day, just sort of, uh, you know, just couldn't make it all come together. So Admiral Busby, the new Mayrad uh, administrator, um, we've had some great meetings with him. I, I think he uh, wants to try and continue that work. I, I really think it's such an important um, step for our country to take. By the way, it would be really good for our economy, you know, if we had sort of a coherent picture about ways to, um, you know, you know, just uh, live, you know, more um, productively, you know, with our, um, you know, really blessed position in terms of, you know, being in the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Gulf of Mexico and even some of the big, you know, interior bodies of waters. And, um, you know, the, the absence of that, I think, is really, frankly, one of the reasons why commercial shipbuilding just kind of disappeared and almost over, you know, over a period of time, because no one was really, you know, looking at it in a coherent way. I don't think that's true of some of the other maritime countries in the world. I think they had very focused, strategic, um, you know, Attention that they were paying to, to that. And as a result, you know, we're, we're seeing, um, you know, technology and ships being built in other parts of the world that, frankly, we, we, we can do it, you know, but we just don't have the, the, you know, the organization to get there. Look, let's say a little bit, I, I really appreciate your insights. So if we could talk a little bit more about that. Why does commercial shipping matter as far as at a strategic level, why do merchant ships make a difference? What 
Well, obviously, there's what part should of it, be done. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. part of it is an operational need. I mean, the uh, you know the logistics of uh, our our you know military require uh, having um, you know auxiliary ships that can transport you know people and supplies and yeah. etc. So, I mean, that's sort of a, a obvious basic level. But in terms of you know. Um, so again, I come from Connecticut. We're an aerospace um, state in terms of Pratt and Whitney and Sikorsky, and and you really do see having a book of business that doesn't just sort of uh, concentrated just in the in the military realm, actually makes the the health of the workforce and the research and development and um, uh, you know the competitiveness of, of these um, you know amazing. Uh, Enterprises stronger, you know that that you know if uh, Pratt and Whitney is making the gear turbofan mm-hmm. for commercial airliners that is about you know um, fuel efficiency and and you know uh, lighter um, materials for for aircraft that spills over and benefits you know in the in the military line of work that they do or if there's a downturn in um, military orders because of some budget cycle you know having that commercial sort of end of the, the business kind of keeps the, the doors open and keeps people working. So I, I really think, you know, having a, a better balance of commercial and military in the maritime shipbuilding realm, I think is just, you know, you would see the same benefits. Uh, you know, there's, there's some instances of it. Uh, General Dynamics, you know, the NASCO shipyard out in San Diego, they do do some commercial and, and obviously they do uh, you know some of the um, Navy's uh, other work, uh, you know, out there as well, and, and and you see there there's a synergy there that really helps both sides when when you have that balance. That's not just all concentrated in one sector. And by the way, uh, you were mentioning some of our competitors around the world. Uh, China is not a bad example, uh, and I'm not saying that. Uh, China is better or that they have the right answer, but they certain, certainly are moving in that direction. I mean, they have a large merchant ship fleet. Um, what is it, the eighth or something largest in the world? Uh, they're building a blue water force that can protect the sea lines of communication over which their merchant ships travel. Um, and they're making large investments all over the world, from the West Pacific to the Indian Ocean to the Mediterranean to the Caribbean, um, in port facilities, putting a large so amounts of money there. So this may just be laissez-faire at work, but I don't think so. Um, and some of that is being sold into the U.S. By right, the way, so exactly. I mean, the BAE shipyard in San Diego just you know purchased this massive dry dock from China, which. Uh, Unfortunately, they couldn't find any other place to, you know, have it built. And, uh, I mean, it's a little, you know, kind of strange to have, uh, you know, U.S. Navy ships in a dry dock that was built, you know, just within the last few years uh, by China. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that um, capability is uh, something that we, we really need to start looking at much more intensely. Yeah. Look, uh, again, because our time is limited, I want to, uh, sort of jump around here sure. a little yep. bit, but uh, the accidents with surface ships that took place uh, regrettably last year um, had national attention for some time, several weeks. Uh, are you satisfied that the changes needed are 
being being made that uh, that the issue has been addressed and that things will get better or that we won't see a repetition of that again? So um, again, just uh, you know, Connecticut lost two sailors in, yeah. in uh, those two incidents. So it was something that was you know very um, you know these you know, amazing young men and women, you know, come from every state in the country. And so it, it really hit hard um, up in New England when, when that happened. And so, um, you know, what I would say is, number one, uh, I think the, the Sea Power and Readiness subcommittees um, really, I think, were very serious and um, persistent in terms of the process of briefings and hearings that took place in the wake of it. It was not like a one-off media event. I mean, we've, we've really been sort of trying to stay on top of this. And, and I think Admiral Richardson uh, and Admiral Moran, you know, have uh, produced, you know, serious uh, documents. Uh, again, the, there's about four or five different, you know, reports that are occurring. You know, some of it's just sort of the police kind of investigation, you know, the actual um, minute by minute. Um, and then, um, you know, then obviously there's been the comprehensive review and then Secretary of Navy Spencer's uh, review. And so I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of... Um, changes that um, have already been implemented internally with the Navy in terms of, uh, you know, really trying to just make sure that we're not sending ships out there where people are certified with basic um, capabilities and, and competencies, which was not the case. Um, it's almost sickening, you know, when you sort of uh, read the, the or see the, the minute by minute account of what happened and, and some of the sailors who had not been um, trained up on some of the new equipment that were on board those ships, which um, again, never should have happened. I mean, these, these were preventable um, issues um, or incidents that took place there. So again, I think that, you know, there already has been, um, you know, some changes that are happening, but, you know, your point about has it been dealt with? I mean, I don't, this, this is not gonna be uh, a done process for, I think, Years. I mean, it, there there really is some some you know changes that that is that you just can't sort of implement overnight. I mean, the the fundamental question which we've been wrestling with in the NDAA and um, you know with the House and the Senate and and certainly talking to um, Admiral Richardson is just you know this question of um, you know who decides you know who, who makes the decision about when a ship um, gets deployed. And as I think, you know, some of the audience knows, it's different in the Pacific Fleet than it is in, in the other parts of the, the Navy's um, operations. And that's been a real tug of war in terms of trying to, um, you know, make sure that there's a safety break here, that, you know, if, if there's really people who are not certified um, to, to operate a ship, um, that, that, you know, the the persistent demand that's out there, which we talked about earlier, is not going to override, um, you know, what I think is, which really should be a fundamental priority, which is safe operation. Well, that's related to my, the follow-on question here, not directly, but indirectly. Uh, and that is that uh, the, uh, the pace of uh, the Chinese Navy's operations in the Western Pacific has picked up recently, especially around Taiwan. I mean, and I mean around literally uh, 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 Taiwan. Um, are we doing enough? Are we uh, responding in a way that uh, you think is convincing? Um, you think the Chinese are 
Chinese Navy, the Chinese leadership is impressed or not impressed or what's your sense? Well, again, I can't really speak specifically to the, what's happening in the, in the Straits in Taiwan uh, per se, but, um, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, starting in the last administration and it's been continuing uh, with the new administration about the, the freedom of navigation, the FONOPS operations that are happening out there. I mean, I think that is still, um, you know, a, a, an important um, message to be that's being sent to the Chinese that you know we, we don't need to ask your permission for innocent passage um, in, in you know this part of the world and you know I, it would but clearly because of the the you know the challenge of quantity um, you know whether or not that's sufficient um, to really um, make drive home the point and, and change the the attitude, uh, it's, I don't think that's happened yet. Uh, what would be a good thing, I think, is if we can sort of start getting some of our allies in the region to join us in some of those, um, uh, you know, deployments and operations so that, you know, once you get like a regular sort of um, stream of, of traffic in, in South China Sea and near these, these, these islands um, that are just, you know, it's clear that they're just going to continue, then I think you really start changing the dynamic, and it's, um, and I know, um, you know, that's something that uh, Secretary Mattis and others have been really trying to encourage our allies to to join us in some of these, and and um, and I think you know that, um, again, we still have a lot of allies, and they are boosting their navies uh, that are out there right now, and I, and I, so I think you know we hopefully can you know really organize that on a multilateral uh, basis. Personally, I think we should ratify the law of the sea treaty. Which uh, you know the fact that we were shut out of the deliberations uh, from the you know the the UN uh, uh, conference you know when Philippines uh, filed that I mean, we couldn't even get um, observer status there at that proceeding uh, you know I mean to me it is so overdue that we just get off the bench and get in the the game in terms of you know using uh, international law more aggressively it, it just screams out for 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 this country to just finally do it. Though we are abiding by... Oh, no, it's true. But, I, but I, I still think, and Admiral Harris, when he testified before the committee, I mean, he said it would, it would clearly take away one of China's arguments. You know, because really, when the, when the ruling came down and, you know, we started raising our voice about it, so, well, you know, you're not even a member of it. So, I mean, we should really get rid of that. And frankly, I think it, 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 would, it would be a, a good message to our allies. Uh, we could continue, yeah. and I hope that we shall. Yes. But uh, time is short, and um, before uh, opening the floor to questions, um, uh, would everybody, when we conclude here, stay in your places for a moment to let the congressman and his group uh, leave so that you can get to your next? Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so we'll try to be fair here um, and uh, start in the very back, sir. And if you'd, uh, would you please identify yourself and sure. um, what organization you're with? Sure, my name is Alex Sanchez. I'm a writer for GN's Defense and SIMSEC. Congressman, while we're meeting here in Washington, the RIMPAC exercises are taking place in Hawaii. Um, I was curious, like, what's your opinion about the exercises 
Uh, you talked all about the, about the U.S. Ally, allies and partners. You have Sri Lanka, India, Peru, Japan, all of them taking place in the exercises. What do you think about it? What do you think about the fact that China was actually disinvited from the exercises after participating in the 2016 and 2014 versions? Thank you. Yeah, so um, uh, you're right. I mean, it's ongoing right now. Uh, again, I was able to attend uh, the last RIMPAC, and uh, it is really, I think, just in a, a really... Um, really refreshing uh, example of U.S. leadership that, you know, these days we're, we're all sort of trying to get our uh, sea, bear, sea legs on, to, to use a bad pun. But, um, you know, watching the interaction of our, our Navy leadership with, uh, with, you know, again, I think the last count was about 25 um, different countries that participate in it. And, um, and again, it is really about, um, you know, reinforcing international norms, uh, freedom of navigation, uh, you know, I, I, my experience when we visited some of the ships out there that it was not this, you know, heavy duty militaristic sort of uh, message. It really was about collaboration and talking about things like, uh, you know, life saving and, uh, you know, protecting uh, as much as it is about any kind of, um, you know, territorial uh, aggressiveness. So China was uh, participating uh, during the visit that I was there. and. It, it was um, it was really interesting because we, we we were we visited a littoral combat ship, U.S. littoral combat ship. We were there, and the day before, uh, there was a, a group of sailors on board the ship who actually visited a Chinese frigate, and uh, it was a kid from Maine. He was the only one from New England that they could find to talk to me there. But uh, anyway, he he was a great guy, and I said, so, so how was it? You know, I mean, you should like you know keep a, a, a diary of this. I mean, that's a big deal, you know. And he said. You know, he's just another, they were just sailors. I mean, they were sort of comparing each other's, you know, um, badges and, 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 you know, they had needed an interpreter. And, but it was, um, but his, one of the officers who was there was basically making the comment that, you know, we, we learn, I think, more than they could learn, you know, by being, having that, that opportunity to go visit, you know, some of these ships and, and observe them in operation. So, uh, I, you know, clearly, um, you know, some things have happened. There's been intervening events that just, I think, that explain why uh, Admiral Richardson uh, changed uh, that position regarding China. Uh, but I, I know it was done with a lot of, um, you know, pros and cons in his own mind in terms of whether or not we were actually giving up some benefits by having them participate. Yes, I see there are a few questions. <laughs> uh, the woman, yes. The second to the last row there. Hi, Monica with Americans for Democracy and Human Rights in Bahrain. The current administration has effectively lifted most of the pressure on Bahrain to implement human rights and democratic reforms, which overall threatens to increase instability in the long run and raises risk to the U.S. Fifth Fleet base there. Um, is Congress or the Navy taking steps to mitigate this risk and encourage sustainable reform in the kingdom? Thank you. Well, I did have a chance to visit uh, Bahrain, and um, there were actually protests that were going on, um, you know, while we were there, uh, and it was a big topic of conversation. Obviously, uh, you know, with our, um, you know, Navy leadership uh, during during that visit, and um, you know, I, I um, think that, you know, this is an issue that we can't sort of just um, look the other way um, if we really want to have an enduring presence, uh, you know, in that part of the world. And it's, um, uh, you know, I, I think the, the change in, in policy is unfortunate because I, I think, frankly, aside from, you know, 
whether you, you, you are sympathetic to um, the people who are protesting and who, uh, you know, they're um, certainly in terms of the population, I don't have the precise numbers, but it's at least equal, if not even more, you know, in terms of the, the, um, you know, the part of the population that's unhappy, um, you know, with the ruling uh, uh, group that's there right now. I, I still feel like that instability is not healthy for what I think is a really critical uh, base for, for the U.S. Navy. So I, I think that, um, you know, we really should revisit that change if, if we're really serious about, uh, as I said, an enduring presence there. I will switch back to this side here. Sir? Uh, thank you, uh, Sushinzo from Osaka Institute for International Studies, China, and uh, also visiting fellow in CSIS. And uh, uh, according to uh, one China principle, I think China's Taiwan and mainland should share uh, the same easy and also made time. Do you think so? And the second is about uh, uh, the U.S. has sent uh, a lot of mixed signals to Chinese side. And uh, you dis, uh, has disinvited China's uh, um, activity to impact and also define China as a strategic uh, competitor. At the same time, your uh, ministry visited China. And I want to know how about the future of the relations between China and the U.S. navies and uh, are there possibilities of conflicts or con cooperations between the two navies? And can you specify it? Thank you. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, if you put our Navy leadership on truth term, and, you know, which they don't really need because they speak, you know, honestly all the time, but I mean, they, they I don't think anyone relishes, you know, uh, any kind of, uh, you know, conflict or, uh, you know, uh, unnecessary um, risks of, of uh, conflict occurring. Having said that, um, you know, I think that the, the policies that are being implemented in terms of island building, uh, you know, asserting um, territorial waters that are just, you know, way outside um, any kind of international, um, you know, law or norms, um, you know, creates real problems that are just going to, um, I think, uh, you know, aggravate risk. And so, um, uh, again, I, I feel like our country could do more in terms of um, upholding international law by just, in, you know, uh, ratifying the law of the sea treaty. But as, as Seth pointed out, you know, we, we certainly have a very strong, consistent policy of respecting and, and obeying the norms that, that uh, you know, the law of the sea treaty uh, creates. Um, but I, I personally feel that the ball is more in China's court about whether or not they want to reduce risk in that part of the world. And I don't say that just as sort of a, a you know, sort of a, you know, USA position. I mean, we, we do communicate on the committee with a lot of uh, other nations that are in that region. And, um, you know, they are, uh, you know, very uh, dissatisfied with uh, the approach that's being taken uh, in the maritime realm in that part of the, the world. I mean, they obviously are, you know, have a front row seat to it. So they, they feel those risks, you know, much more acutely. So um, I, I think that, you know, when the, we, if we can get to a point where people can sit down and start talking these things through, that's better than, you know, playing chicken out there uh, on, the, on the high seas. We'll switch to the other side of the room here. Front row. 
Thank you, a reporter from Voice America. I have two questions. Congressman, you mentioned that China has uh, increased its building, naval power building. So my question is, has China, uh, has China's military, uh, naval power built up successfully changed the balance of power in the South China Sea area? And if there is a conflict or a war breakout, can the United States definitely win the war. Uh, second question is about the FONAPs. You mentioned that under this administration, the FONAPs because more uh, reg regular and we have the allies there too. But uh, it seems to me that China, we, we cannot stop China's militarization of the islands in that area. So can the United States do something more efficient to stop them? Thank you. So, I mean, on the first question, um, there, there's just no um, debate about whether or not um, you know, China has uh, expanded uh, the size of its navy. Um, they obviously have uh, made big strides in terms of uh, technology, missile technology, space technology, cyber technology that um, you know are much different um, than 10 years or so uh, ago. And so, um, you know, my um, per opinion is is that um, it, it's definitely a, a more challenging place. You know, if you're just looking at it strictly from a sort of military versus military um, uh, scope, but the uh, my personal opinion is that we still have um, the, you know a, a stronger capabilities to um, you know overcome any um, you know if there was any conflict that was there. Just to, you know because your question was very blunt, and I'm going to be you know I think I still have a high degree of confidence that um, so for example their submarine fleet which is the numbers are growing uh, as, as Seth uh, pointed out, but they don't have the decades of uh, experience that the U.S. Navy has in terms of operating in the undersea domain. And that still is a very strong, um, you know, I think advantage uh, to our side. I still think, you know, the Virginia class uh, submarine program in particular, um, you know, has capabilities that, um, you know, really, even though we can't match sub for sub necessarily, I still think that um, I, I would, um, you know, tip the, the advantage to, to the U.S. And, um, you know, and the second uh, question, I mean, it, it's, um, you know, actually, I think we still have more work to do with our allies to help us with the FONOPS. Uh, you know, the, it, it, again, I don't think it's reached that sort of um, level of regularity that I think is what's necessary to, to really just make a firm consistent statement that, um, you know, the world is just not going to sacrifice, um, you know, international norms and international law in terms of what innocent passage has been, you know, the, the, the norm for 70 years. I mean, that, that's something that is just so important that we get more um, countries to help participate in, in really sending that um, consistent, persistent message. Well, we have one minute left, and by coincidence, one question left. So, <laughs> uh, um, let's see. There's a sir here. Yeah. Uh, Peter Humphrey, Intel analyst and a former diplomat. Um, in my earlier life, I was a uh, oceanographer, and we always had a guy on the deck with a walkie-talkie. And there were no ship collisions. Seems like a no-brainer. Um, the question, um, isn't it time for uh, an upgrade on icebreakers? And do we really have to source it from the US? Isn't there any way to get icebreaker competent nation like Finland 
to take the contract or maybe to do the construction work here under a finished contract. So again, we have been really trying to, I mean, as you know, the Sea Power Committee, you know, we, we don't have the Department of Transportation or the Coast Guard directly under our purview. However, you know, we have uh, authorized over the last couple of years, um, you know, the legal framework for the Navy to work with the Coast Guard and actually help them, you know, with the shipbuilding program because that, the size of these um, ships are really sort of, you know, just bigger and outside the Coast Guard's sort of regular, uh, you know, shipbuilding programs. And, and again, we've actually had a very good response from the Navy in terms of wanting to help with that. Uh, I mean, your question is, is uh, actually very timely because we just got word in the budget uh, process, the appropriations process, that the, the, the Department of Transportation budget that's coming out of the House actually does not have any money uh, for uh, uh, icebreaker construction. So uh, I think there's going to be a bunch of us that are going to be uh, offering a, an amendment. Hopefully, it'll fare better than the submarine amendment in terms of uh, you know trying to keep the momentum moving forward. Because again, we, we, we've had some good preliminary steps in terms of design. Uh, you know, getting that uh, seating you know into the process and moving forward. As far as uh, the question of um, you know whether or not you could. We could take advantage of Finland's, uh, you know, very superior um, competence in this area. Again, we've had visits uh, from uh, the Finnish government and, and their defense ministry and uh, you know Coast Guard ministry to talk about that in our office. I, you know, I don't think we're going to buy a, a Coast Guard cutter, excuse me, an icebreaker, you know, and just plop it. Uh, in, in the U.S. Coast Guard. However, there's clearly we, we have. It's been so long since we've we've done this in this country that there's clearly competencies and systems, and and help that that I think it would be you know crazy for us not to take advantage of. And so I think I think there's going to be you know some collaboration at some level, but not the full uh, boat. Yep. Uh, Congressman. Thank you so much for joining it's a pleasure. us today. Yeah. Uh, I hope that uh, you'll come back and we can continue the discussion. Happy to. Um, and we'll be in touch with you and your staff. And for all of you who ask such good questions and listen so patiently and well, um, thank you for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you at the next similar event. Great.